0: All of us, every one of us need examples to follow. We need men and women who have gone before us and by their lives they have demonstrated how to live out the truths of Scripture. It's not just enough to know these principles. We need models. We need examples. And of course the greatest example is the Lord Jesus Christ because everything he did, everything he said is absolutely perfect. But Scripture also calls us to follow in the steps of others who walked with God. For example, the Apostle Paul said in a number of places, not just one, but throughout the New Testament, Paul said that we should follow his example as he follows Christ. So he said, Philippians three, seventeen Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Again he said in Philippians chapter four, verse nine the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he said, what you have seen in me, practice. Put into practice. And of course, the famous passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where Paul said, be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. The Bible also teaches that local church leaders, in particular pastors, are supposed to be godly examples for congregations to follow. And so we read in Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. And then there's Paul writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 12, where he says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now, All of these scriptures exhort us to follow the example of these men because they honored the Lord with their lives and therefore they should be emulated. We should follow their example. They're good examples for us. However, scripture also tells us about men and women who are presented on the pages of the Bible as examples for us not to follow. These are negative examples, poor examples, and so we are to look at their lives, learn from their failures, and make sure that we don't do what they did. Well, tonight as we continue our study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we're going to see an entire nation during a certain period of time in their history that scripture presents as a poor, negative example. An example that we are to learn from so that we don't repeat the same sins that they committed. And of course, the nation I'm referring to is the nation of Israel. And the time of their history is the time that they left Egypt and spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And the verses that exhort us to learn from their poor example are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read to you verses 1 through 13. We began to look at this last week. We continue this week. For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us So that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Or let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Now, as you can see, two times in these verses, Paul specifically refers to the Israelites as examples. Examples for whom? For, well, any New Testament believer, the Corinthians, and by application, us. He said this in verse 6, he said in verse 11, they are examples, but they are negative examples in that we are to learn from their sinful failures we don't copy them we learn from them and we say we're not going to do what they did the question though is what are we to learn we know we're to learn something but what are we to learn what's the lesson of instruction that God has for us what exactly are we supposed to discover from these ancient Israelites that we say we're not going down that road and the answer is this. That liberty issues, those practices that are neither commanded nor forbidden in scripture so that they are left up to us and thus called liberty. Left up to us whether or not we want to participate in them. Those liberty issues are dangerous. Dangerous. That's the lesson. And they're dangerous because if we are not careful and we become overconfident in our ability to handle our liberty, then we will certainly fall into sin just as the Israelites did. That is Paul's main lesson. And this is precisely why Paul ends this section with the two verses of 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't make the mistake of being overconfident, thinking that you can handle any liberty issue and take it to the edge without falling into sin. If you think you stand, be careful because you're likely to fall. And secondly, he mentioned verse 13 about the temptation. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and so forth, God will give a way of escape. Because what he is saying is simply this, whatever temptation you find yourself in, especially when it comes to a liberty issue, you can be sure that God will give you the way of escape so that you don't need to give into that temptation and sin. Now, the particular liberty issue that Paul was most concerned about when it came to the Corinthians was this whole issue of eating food sacrificed. To an idol. Some of the Corinthians, as you know, they thought it was fine, while others were opposed to it because their conscience would not allow them to eat such food without feeling condemned. Condemned because they felt that if they ate food like this, they were backsliding and they were actually participating in idolatry. Now, last week in our opening study of 1 Corinthians 10, we saw how Paul ended chapter 9 and then how he connected his thought from chapter 9 to the opening of chapter 10. So having closed chapter 9 by speaking about his own personal discipline in maintaining his usefulness and his fellowship with the Lord, Paul moved on then to what we call chapter 10, where he wrote of the failures of the Israelites to remain disciplined during their wilderness wanderings. And as a result, they fell into all kinds of... Of sin. So the connection is this, folks. He wants the Corinthians and us, by way of application, to see how dangerous liberty issues can be because if we fail to discipline ourselves like Paul did over liberty issues, if we fail to say no to our fleshly desires, it will lead us inevitably to falling into sin as the Israelites did. So going back into The History of Israel, Paul teaches several truths about the danger of being overconfident in approaching a liberty issue, with the first truth being this. Though greatly privileged, the Israelites fell into sin, and that's verses 1 through 6. Now, we don't need to review those verses because I think we covered them in detail last week, but we do need to remember the gist of what these verses are saying. The gist of it is this, although God greatly blessed Israel with all kinds of privileges, many of them miraculous privileges and blessings. The majority of the people fell into sin and consequently God judged them by taking their lives. That's what verse 5 says. Nevertheless, meaning even though they were blessed and they were greatly privileged and there were many supernatural miracles God did, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness it means that they were they were spread out in death all throughout the wilderness and why did they fall into sin because they failed to discipline and control their fleshly desires that's what verse 6 tells us now these things happen as examples for us they are to teach us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved now here's what we're supposed to learn from these Israelites the lesson is that we are not to crave evil things or else we will fall just like they fell especially when it comes to participating in a liberty issue because we know that liberty issues are permissible and that's the danger see the problem is this knowing that these issues are permissible in the sense that God doesn't say you can't do this We tend, in those issues, to let down our guard. And when we do that, we are very vulnerable. We are very susceptible to crossing the line so that we move from what is permissible to what is not permissible, meaning sin. And so, having told us that the Israelites, though privileged and blessed, still fell into sin because they failed to control and discipline their fleshly desires, Paul now becomes very specific about exactly what those sins were that were committed by the Jewish people. He identifies four sins that the Israelites committed during their wilderness wanderings. Now, there were many more sins, but he highlights four of them. And he highlights these particular sins because these are the very sins that the Corinthians were in danger of falling into. They were in danger of falling into these particular sins because in the use of their liberty, they failed to control their bodily cravings and folks you'll see this as we go through these four sins we're going to see how relevant they are how applicable these truths are to us because we are still very much in danger of committing these same types of sins because being overconfident we too fail to curb our fleshly desires now the first sin that Paul identifies is the sin of idolatry verse 7 says this do not be idolaters as some of them were As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. Now, most appropriately, Paul begins by warning the Corinthians not to be idolaters, which is exactly what they were most in danger of becoming because of the liberty issue of eating food sacrificed to an idol. And he tells them that due to their lack of disciplining their fleshly, Urges and desires and cravings, some of the Israelites became idolaters. Now, when you think about this, when you really ponder this, the idolatry of Israel at this point in their history is rather remarkable. I mean, I think we take for granted that, yes, the Jewish people throughout their history fell into idolatry, but at this point, it is truly astounding that they went into idolatry since God had done so much for them. He demonstrated so often to them his power as he supernaturally guided them by a cloud hovering over them by day which turned into a pillar of fire directing them at night. God's presence was just obvious. His power was obvious. He parted the Red Sea so that they could escape from being attacked by the Egyptians he had supernaturally provided food for them supernaturally provided water for them he had given them this great man Moses as their leader and listen they were alone in the wilderness think about that there's nobody around them they were alone in the sense that there were no pagan idols around them to tempt them there were no heathen people trying to lure them into idolatry there were no pagan temples saying come 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 and worship here. Nothing like that. And yet they still managed to fall into idolatry. All because of their own sinful cravings. And Paul states how this happened by quoting from Exodus 32 verse 6. He said, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now let me quote to you the verses leading up to this in Exodus 32, 1 through 5. And you'll see exactly what Paul is referring to. We read now, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten cap. That is, he liquefied it and then it solidified. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord." as you can see, these verses tell us about the time when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive from God the Ten Commandments. But being gone for 40 days and 40 nights, the people became impatient, waiting for Moses to return. And so they asked Aaron, who was Aaron? He was the brother of Moses and the first high priest. They asked Aaron to make a molten golden calf. For them, which they said represented the God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt. Even though they might have said, yes, this represents Jehovah, it still is a false God and a graven image. And Aaron did exactly what the people requested. He made this molten calf from the people's jewelry and then held a feast where they offered animal sacrifices in worship of this false God. And it was at this very feast that we read, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now these were not innocent games that they were playing. Commenting on what exactly this means, John MacArthur writes in his commentary, the eating and drinking refer to the excessive feasting that followed the sacrifices. Play is a euphemism for sexual relations. It means sexual play. And is the same word translated caressing in Genesis 26 verse 8. Some 3,000 of the Israelites who had instigated that idolatrous and immoral orgy at Sinai were put to death. Now folks, the point, the point that the apostle is making is just how easy it was for the Israelites to fall into idolatry. It was just so subtle. It was unplanned. Nobody thought this thing through but nevertheless they became idolaters with nothing around to really tempt them. It's from their own hearts. They became idolaters and if the Corinthians are not careful and this is what Paul is telling them they will find themselves doing the very same thing. They'll visit an idol's temple in their city. They'll sit down. They'll eat food offered to an idol thinking that they could handle it but before they would realize it They'll find themselves worshiping that very idol just like they used to do before they were saved. Now listen, you may think this is completely irrelevant for you because you're never going to bow down to a molten calf or any inanimate object and worship it, and that's probably true. But Christians have to be aware that idolatry comes in many different forms. Anything that you worship, anything that you live for, Anything that you feel you must have, you have to have it at all costs, that's an idol. It's an idol of your heart. One Bible teacher nailed it when he said this. Churches and philosophies have developed that virtually make gods of success, love, social service, self image, or simply mankind. Anything that takes our first loyalty and allegiance is an idol. Many people who would not take a second glance at a carved idol will sacrifice health, time, family, moral standards, and anything else required in order to achieve the idol of success or recognition they want. The sin of idolatry, like every other sin, is of the heart. So be careful. Be so very careful careful because the very things of a liberty nature that you think you can handle it's no big deal you may not be able to handle and that's the danger could easily turn into some idolatrous practice for you for example drinking an alcoholic beverage the bible doesn't say you can't it condemns drunkenness but not drinking an alcoholic beverage it isn't a sin in and of itself Therefore, we would put it under the category of a liberty issue. But if you're not careful, you can become careless by being overconfident that you can handle drinking alcohol. It's no big deal. And before you realize it, you can't live without it. So now you've made it an idol because you have to have it, and you become someone who gets drunk. I'm just illustrating how easily it can happen if you don't guard your heart. That's why liberty issues... In and of themselves, they're fine, but there's this potential danger to take them from a liberty to sin. And so, idolatry is the first sin that Paul says the Israelites committed, and he warns the Corinthians to not follow their example. The second sin that Paul says the Israelites fell into is the sin of sexual immorality. Verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, this statement by Paul is a reference to an incident that happened when the children of Israel, enticed by the women of Moab, that's modern-day Jordan, but the women of Moab entered into the idolatrous worship of their pagan gods, which involved sexual immorality. We read about this going back to the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Now the passage goes on to say that as a result of their sexual immorality, God sent a plague that killed thousands upon thousands of Jewish people. Now it isn't surprising that Paul highlights this sin of immorality to the Corinthians because idolatry and immorality in the ancient world went hand in hand. In fact, the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth employed thousands of sacred prostitutes so that any male believer who ate food at this temple because he felt it was, well, it's his liberty to eat this food would often find himself seduced into not only idol worship but into sexual sin. Folks, the principle applies to us as well. You may think that you are morally strong enough and spiritually mature enough to handle any type of sexual temptation. You're not. So often we think that we can handle anything and we can't. How many Christians have fallen into sexual sin because they found themselves engaged in some liberty issue? I mentioned this last week. I'll say it again. Like kissing someone you're attracted to and before you know it, you've gone too far and you've fallen into sexual sin. Or you feel like you can be someplace where sexual temptation is strong, but you think you can handle it. You think you can handle it. It's very likely that you cannot handle it, and then you fall. Or you may consider it your liberty to watch certain movies or read certain books that have sexually suggestive contents. And though it may indeed be your liberty to watch or read this stuff, you may not be able to handle it, and then you fall. Listen, The way to handle sexual temptation is not to see how far you can go before crossing the line into sin. The way to handle sexual temptation is, as Paul told Timothy, to flee, to run away from youthful lust. As soon as you start down the road of thinking about it, letting your mind dwell on these things of a sexual nature, you're doomed to fall. That's why Paul said, don't even go down that path. Run as far away as you can and as fast as you can. So Paul has identified now two ways that the Israelites sinned so that we would not fall into those same sins. They sinned by falling into idolatry. They sinned by falling into sexual immorality. And in verse 9, Paul states another area where the Israelites sinned and he warns the Corinthians and us to beware of doing the same things. He says that the Israelites sinned by Number three, testing God. Putting God to the test, trying him. Verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. You mean snakes. Now this statement by Paul is a reference to the time that the Israelites expressed dissatisfaction with God's provision for them. And so they tried him in the sense that they put his power and faithfulness to the test. In other words, they complained about God's provision by pushing him, testing him, so to see how far they could go in getting him to do for them what they wanted him to do for them. This is what it means to test God. It means to test the limits of how much he'll do for you. And the incident that Paul has in mind is found in Numbers 21 where we read in verse 5, the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now God had been so gracious. He had been so kind to Israel in that he had delivered them. Think about this. He delivered them from the bondage of slavery. He provided manna for them to eat. Water for them to drink as they wandered about. But they just were not satisfied. They wanted something more. And so they complained against God that he brought them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. And as a result of their complaining, Numbers 21 says that God sent poisonous snakes into their camp that bit them and many died. Now the basic sin of the Israelites is that they were not satisfied with what God had done in their lives. And they were pushing him and pushing him to do more for them. And so they complained, testing him to see what more he could and would do for them. Now why is Paul telling the Corinthians about this particular sin? Because the Corinthians were in danger of doing the very same thing by taking their liberty to the limits to see just how far they could go without falling into sin. See, that's the danger of these liberty issues. So often, we just are not satisfied with the liberty that Christ has given us. And so we take advantage of this liberty by seeing how much we can engage in without actually sinning. How close to the edge we can get without actually falling how near to the fire we can go without actually being burned. That's completely wrong. That's a wrong attitude because it reveals a dissatisfaction with all that God has given you in Christ and you just have a craving for more. Let me go as far as I can. A craving to have what he hasn't given you. So you push him to see how far he'll let you go before he disciplines you. And that's why Paul is warning us not to test God, not to try to see how much we can get out of Him. Just be content with what He's provided for you and all that He's already given you, including all of your freedom in Christ. Now, the fourth and final way that Paul says that Israel sinned in the wilderness is that they complained against God. Verse 10 nor grumble. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, Paul here speaks of the grumbling of the children of Israel, which means they were complaining. But frankly, if you read through the Old Testament, you will see that Israel complained many times throughout their wilderness wanderings. However, Paul has a specific time. In mind, He's not talking about in generalities but a specific time in mind because it was a time when God responded to their grumbling by destroying them, meaning he killed them as a punishment for their complaining. Now frankly, it is difficult to know exactly which time of complaining that the Apostle Paul has in mind. And I say that because there are two incidents in which the people of Israel complained against the leadership of Moses and then the leadership of Moses and Aaron and in both instances God killed some of the people with a plague however most likely Paul is referring to an incident of complaining that took place in number 16 When a number of men rose up against Moses and Aaron and rebelled against their leadership. And the reason that I say that this is, in my judgment, what Paul is referring to is because God's judgment of the Jewish people at this time was much more drastic than at any other time that they complained. Here's what we read in Numbers 16, verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Itzar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up against Moses, or before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone far enough, For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst, so why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Do you understand what they're saying? We're all on the same level. Who made you boss? Who put you in charge? We're all holy. You don't have any authority over us. Now the chapter goes on to say that God judged these men, all 250 of these renowned men by opening up the earth and swallowing them alive now you would think that this would catch the attention of all the other people but instead of repenting and humbling themselves before the Lord the rest of the nation they were incensed incensed at this and they again complained against Moses and Aaron for causing the deaths of these 250 men Here's what we read a little bit later in the chapter. Numbers 16 verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled. Now, not just 250 men, it's all of them grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you're the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. As a result of this, this rebellion, this rebellious complaining, The end of number 16 tells us that God sent a plague that wiped out over 14,000 Israelites. How complaining is a terrible sin. It's a terrible sin, and a lot of Christians are guilty of it, but it's a terrible sin because it's an accusation against God that he's wrong about something, some dealing in your life. He's not treated you properly properly. His will for you, you don't like it. Life isn't right and he's to blame. But the specific issue here of complaining that Paul has in mind isn't just complaining in general. The complaining of the Jewish people was the complaint against God putting in leadership over them Moses and Aaron. And why would Paul be concerned That the Corinthians be warned about complaining against God's leaders. Well, very likely it's because the Corinthians were having a difficult time heeding Paul's leadership and what he was teaching them about liberty issues. And Paul knew this. Apparently many of them didn't like that Paul told them to limit the use of their liberty out of love for their brethren. And so the apostle is warning them not to complain in essence about him being their apostle, because God does not tolerate such rebellion. And the application for us is this. We need to be so very careful about complaining against the elders of our church, men whom God has sovereignly placed in leadership roles. Now, you may disagree with what you have been taught in a class or even from this pulpit and you may not like some of the counsel that you've been given by various elders or you may question the whole issue of why these men even have authority over you. So be careful about complaining against your leaders simply because you don't like the fact of their leadership over you. That's to rebel against God and he will discipline you. It doesn't mean you can't question something they've said. No elder is like King Saul where David said, touch not the Lord's anointed. We are not the Lord's anointed. You can come to us and question us. But rebellious complaining is very different. I recall a man many years ago who was going through membership classes at our church. Everything was going fine until in the membership class he heard... Of the biblical principle that if he joined this church. He needed to be in submission to the authority of the elders. This is what the New Testament teaches. But when he heard this. Not only didn't he like it. He left the church. Listen there wasn't to my knowledge. There wasn't even a conflict. He just didn't like the thought. Of having any authority in the church over him. And so he's gone. So folks, these are the four sins that Israel committed in the wilderness that serve as a warning to us that there is indeed a serious danger in taking our liberty too far. In spite of being so privileged, so blessed by God, the Jewish people still fell into idolatry, immorality, testing God, and complaining. And they serve as examples to us not to do what they did, but to learn from Their mistakes. And the way to learn from their mistakes is to guard your mind so that you don't foolishly think you can handle your liberty in the power of your own strength. And then make sure that you discipline your body by saying no to your fleshly desires, just like Paul did, and just like the Israelites did not do. The next time we study this passage, we're going to see how Paul explains about how this all applies specifically to us today. But as we bring our study to a close, it is important for us to examine our hearts to see if we're guilty of any of the sins that, that Paul wrote about. So don't, don't turn your minds off. You have to think about this. Are there any idols in your life? Anything that has your first loyalty? Anything you feel you have to have, you must have? If that is the case then you need to repent. That's an idol in your heart. What about sexual immorality? Anything you're involved in that violates God's word about sex, either in your mind or physical actions? If so, again, you need to repent. What about testing God? Is there anything you're dissatisfied about? Something you think you should have more of, and so you're pushing, and you're pushing God to see how much you can get out of him, rather than simply be satisfied with what he's given you. That's the case again. You need to repent. And what about complaining against your elders? If you resent them simply because they have been given spiritual authority over you, then you need to repent of that. And if you're not yet a Christian, then you need to recognize that Jesus Christ, he is the ultimate authority over you. He has every right as your creator to tell you what to do. And what he tells you to do, primarily, firstly, is to believe on him for eternal life, to repent of your sin, to turn to him, to trust him and his death on the cross is the only hope you have of ever being saved, of ever being forgiven of your sin, of ever standing before a holy God. That is what Christ wants for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very instructive passage of scripture. And I pray for all of us here that we wouldn't Let these truths pass through us without really pondering them because it's so easy for us to think that this doesn't apply to us. We're strong. We can handle anything when we can't. So I pray, Lord, that those who think that they could stand, that they'll take heed lest they fall, that they'll take these things to heart. If there's anything that anyone here or watching online needs to repent of, may they do so. And anyone who needs to trust Christ for salvation, may they do so as well. So Lord, help us to learn from the Jewish people what not to do and to follow the example of men like Paul and Timothy and others who have shown us the way to walk before you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.